today's reading uh, will be from Ephesians chapter 3, which can be found on page 1174 of the Church Bibles. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, Chantal. Well, I'll um, ask you please to keep your Bibles open there, <clears throat> excuse me, at Ephesians chapter 3 uh, on page 1174. And also inside your, uh, on the inside of your leaflet, you should find an outline of what I want to talk about. Uh, it'd be good to have that open in front of you, uh, this, um, yeah, the shape of what we're going to talk about, and also a couple of extra Bible verses that will save you flicking up over the next little while. Uh, it is a, uh, as I said, it's lovely to be here uh, with you again. Uh, this is obviously a huge chapter, and I'm not going to cover it all, but the handout uh, should also give an indication as to where I'm going to spend most of our time this morning as we pick up on a few key ideas. Let me pray, and uh, then we will... Uh, Open God's word for this morning. Heavenly Father, thanks that in your kindness and mercy you've spoken to us. Uh, You've not been silent. Uh, You can be known. 
and uh, we can know your love more and more. So we pray this day, may that be so, and in response, help us to live lives that are worthy of your gospel. Amen. Uh, Well, I'm obviously walking into a series that you've been making your way through and you'll be continuing afterwards. Uh, Last week in chapter 2, you saw that magnificent description of how what Jesus has done actually unites people uh, because we're all dependent on him and him alone for our salvation and so Jews and Gentiles are bonded together. And that's actually how the passage begins because if you look at chapter 3 verse 1, Paul continues, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, uh, that is, Paul is suffering for his proclamation of the gospel that brings people together, Uh, And then he kind of gets distracted uh, in verses 2 through 13. Uh, He heads off in a slightly different direction. Uh, And I want to say just a couple of things about this passage because although they might seem like he's going in a different direction, they're actually key for us understanding what's going on in this passage. Let me just read the first paragraph to you again from verses 2 through 6. Paul goes on, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. This section is all about the mystery of Christ. Uh, the word mystery there carries the sense of a revelation of something that until now has not been known. Uh, the image is of an unveiling or an announcement, or as we might say today, a press release. And there are three elements to this mystery uh, which you'll see. Uh, firstly, whatever the mystery is, It's been a long time coming. Whatever this mystery is, it's been a long time coming. Look at verse 5. It was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God to God's holy apostles. Whatever this mystery is, it's been long anticipated. Uh, Second thing about this mystery, uh, well, verse 6, the mystery is that everything God does, he does for us together. Uh, And so verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, you know, when you read the Bible, when God really wants us to hear something, he kind of repeats it because we're a bit slow and a bit dim at times. So you notice the word together? (laughs) Three times in one verse. Paul is emphatic. Whatever God does for for you and me, he does for all of us together. That is, though it is right that each of us must respond individually to the Lord and what he has done, still, Jesus doesn't just save me, he doesn't just save you, he saves us. And he saves us together. You take that idea and that helps you understand why so much of what we do in church is about togetherness. For example, it's the reason why most of the songs that we sing, certainly when we sing together, uh, they're about we, not me. 
Now, it, it's right to have songs of personal response, but more profound, more important, is that we stand together and we sing together about what God has done for us together. Now, at this point, I want to say what many of us are thinking, but probably not willing to admit. Personally, I prefer to receive most of these benefits on my own. Uh, you notice the imagery there is about being um, heirs. I don't know about you. I'd rather be a sole heir than a joint heir. But that's not the mystery of Christ. That's not what God is announcing. Everything he does, he does for us together. And so the third thing to say about this mystery is that uh, it's revealed to some, but through some, it is to be passed on to everyone. This mystery is revealed to some, but through some, it is to be passed on to everyone. And you see that in the way in which Ephesians 3 walks through the passage, through the way in which Paul's logic flows in Ephesians 3. First it comes to Paul, and then it gets passed on to others. So verse 2, Paul will say, the mystery has been given, uh, this grace has been given to me, but he doesn't say for me, verse 2, he says given to me for you. And likewise then in verse 4, that you will be able to understand my insight. And likewise, if you drop down a little later in the passage, if you look at verses 8 and 9, uh, verse 8, although I'm the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. The mystery of Christ, the announcement about what God has done for us, it comes to some, but then through some it is to go to everyone. Of course, the reason Paul is talking about this is because the proclamation of the gospel brings hardship. You see that in verse 1, Paul is a prisoner of the Christ Jesus, is a prisoner uh, for the sake of the Gentiles. And in verse 13, he'll talk about his sufferings that he's undergoing. And in fact, you know it from your own experience. You know that to preach the Lord Jesus uh, in our context here in Adelaide, let alone in other parts of the world, will attract persecution. But it's to be done because this is why God has revealed himself to us that we might share the good news about him with others. This is how God has always worked, in fact. You see, the reason why, humanly speaking, any of us are believers is because God sends someone to us in the first place. So who might you pass it on to? Now, some of us... You sit here, uh, we sit here and we hear someone from the front saying we should be sharing our faith with others, that others might come to believe as well. And we think things like, well, I'm not sure that God would use me or could use me. I don't know my faith well. I'm nervous. I'm shy. I'm embarrassed. I don't know the right people who might respond. God used Paul. Do you notice how Paul was described there in verse 8? Paul is described as, he calls himself, he was the least of all the Lord's people. The least of all the Lord's people. In case you don't know, Paul's background before he began preaching the gospel was persecuting Christians. There perhaps would not be any person less likely to be used by God to proclaim Jesus 
than someone who is persecuting Christians, and yet God used him. So he can use you. Uh, Whether you are nervous, whether you've been antagonistic. There's a great movie going around at the moment. Uh, Some of you will have been to see it, Uh, The Case of Christ, the story of Lee Strobel. Has anyone here been to see this movie? Yeah, some have been to see it. Um, Terrific movie, which speaks all about a man who was convinced that Christianity was a load of rubbish uh, unfortunately, his wife became a Christian and then at that point decided that, well, really what he should do is dissuade her. To his credit, I suppose, he at least tried to find out and in so doing himself turned to the Lord. Extraordinary story. And uh, so many of you will have seen or used his books that he has written, which are terrific books for engaging with those who don't know Jesus. The Case of Christ, uh, The Case of Faith, The Case for Easter, The Case of Christmas... I mean, once you're on a franchise, you might as well keep going with it, right? Case for my superannuation fund. Um, No, no, that's that's not true. Uh, He's he's on to a good thing, right? And he's a fine and gifted writer, but he began from someone who was maybe not the least of all of God's people, but certainly not far off. God can use you. Because the mystery that is revealed to each of us is to be passed on. And the reason why in the end he can use any of us is... Because right back in verse 2, right back in verse 2, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace. The administration of God's grace. The reason he can use any of us is because in the end, the message we have is not about us. It's not about what we can or can't do. It's not about our actions, our successes or our failures. In the end, the message that we proclaim is about God's initiative, God's action, God's grace. And that's actually where I want to spend the rest of our time. I'm going to gloss over the entire of uh, verses 7 through 13. Uh, much as there is, that could be said about it, uh, if you notice there in verse 10, for example, Paul says, God's intention was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Uh, this is an intriguing verse. It seems to be saying that in the heavenly realms... God, when he gets together with all the other angelic beings, the rulers and authorities, he says, look at the church. That is my finest creation. That's a fairly lofty way of describing church. Sadly, it's not always like that, I suppose, but that's at least God's perspective. We could spend whole sermons on that particular verse alone. Uh, But where I want us to come to is to his great prayer, uh, which he is led to as he reflects on this mystery of God that's been revealed, on his grace. So I'll ask you to come with me down to verse 14. Verse 14, point to in your handout, the Father of all. Paul continues, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Uh, Let me say something about these verses before we actually come to what it is that Paul will have us pray as he prays for us. Uh, Verse 14 uh, begins with him saying that he kneels before the Father. Now, you have quite comfortable chairs here, uh, you know, firm plastic chairs. Uh, Trinity City, where I go, uh, we have horrible pews. 
which are uncomfortable in every way. And in front of most of the pews, we have pew kneelers. Now, if you've been in an old-fashioned church, you know what these are. These are the things that you put down uh, when you kneel to pray. Uh, we don't use them very often for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, although there's something we've lost in that because to kneel before someone is a sign of allegiance, a sign of submission, that the one before whom you kneel is the one whom you will serve. Normally, you kneel before a king or a queen, don't you? You kneel before them to offer your life, your service, however they will see fit. And that's the right image. But that's not the one that Paul uses here. Did you notice? We kneel before the Father. We kneel before the Father. And I think what Paul is doing here is that he's reminding us that kneeling is not meant to make you feel afraid as if you're cowering before a sovereign who is majestic and powerful, though God clearly is those things. Kneeling before a father, who he goes on to say, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, uh, it's a reminder that the decision to kneel, the willingness to kneel, comes from a conviction that the one before whom we kneel, he loves us dearly. He loves us like a father does perfectly. And even though I, I understand that for many of us, some of us, that's not been our own experience of our earthly fathers, still we know what it ought to have been like. Maybe a better image then, instead of saying kneel before the father, is sit on your father's knee. Which, you know, given the size of some of your children now, I get that's a terrifying thought for everyone uh, as they're growing up. Um, and it's probably not the right image either, because we just talk about kneeling, but that sense of intimacy and closeness. This is the one before whom we come. And did you notice there, he's the father of every family on heaven and under earth, and on earth. Uh, sometimes we ask, who are you related to? And it's a good question to ask. Your family relationships define those who are closest to you, those to whom you show uh, unconditional love, uh, even when it's hard. Uh, you tell who your family is by your name, by your surname, by your family name. Uh, mine is Lynn. It's uh, intriguing to me that still a number of people in Australia think that because my surname is Lynn, if they meet someone else with the surname of Lynn, that therefore we are closely related. Um, that, that's possible, although there are apparently nearly 10 million Lynns in the world, so it's kind of like Smith or Jones for Chinese people. So just bear that in mind next time you assume that, yeah. Um, but... They're right in a sense, aren't they? We all bear the same name. The name that we bear is the name of the Lord Jesus. Because everything that God does for us, he does for us together. And so we are one family. Every family on heaven and on earth means anyone can come before God. Everyone is welcome Far be it from us to ever exclude anyone from our midst. Because in the end, everyone is welcome to come home to the family to whom they belong. Uh, from his bended knee then, point three, Paul has two prayer requests. Paul has two prayer requests. Let's look at them in turn. 
Firstly, that God might strengthen you with power that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. So verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Uh, Two things that Paul prays for the Ephesians uh, in this particular prayer. Uh, Firstly, he prays that their hearts might be changed or transformed. Uh, What uh, one author has called, and I've written it there for you on your handout, the renovation of the heart. That's the first thing that God does in us. He changes our heart that our desires, our longings, our character, our intentions, they might beat and align with our Father's heart. A different way of saying that is that Christians, uh, we have Christ who dwells in our heart, but it takes time for us to welcome him in, not just as a temporary guest, but as a permanent resident. That's the work of Christ over many years. We welcome him in, and eventually he takes root, and our hearts are renovated. It's a reminder that a Christian... Um, someone in whom Christ is established, the process of the heart being renovated, it is slow. And I've chosen the phrase renovation of the heart because though I've never done this, uh, some of you will have had the misfortune to have renovated your homes. And you'll know that that's a slow process. There are setbacks, are there not? Every time. But the end goal is what you keep working towards. So that's Paul's first prayer. That with power, Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. uh, That our hearts might be renovated. And the way in which that happens is because, as I said, God is at work in us. He is in us. And that's the second reference there to God's empowering presence. Uh, This is what um, Gordon Fee uh, says, his description of who the Holy Spirit is. You know, There are many ways in which you could describe the Holy Spirit, but I think this is the most elegant of all. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. He is God in us. He's he's his presence and he empowers us. Which, of course, is wonderful encouragement for all the times when you wonder if the makeover that Christ is doing in your heart will ever be complete. Uh, The parallel here is of the power of the Holy Spirit in our inner being. That's the certainty and conviction that what God has begun, he will finish. Again, it takes time. It's not always obvious how fast things are moving. But if the Spirit is God's empowering presence, you can be certain he will not fail, even if we find it hard to go on. Uh, all of which raises the question then, uh, how do you know that the, God, that's the Spirit's power is at work in you? How do you know that Christ is resident in your hearts? Well, there's a couple of verses there on your handout. If you have a look closely at them, uh, you'll see. Here's a couple of different ways in which the New Testament understands the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The evidence that the Spirit is at work in us. From 2 Corinthians chapter 10, our thoughts are taken captive. Uh, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul is saying here that even our thinking 
becomes obedient to Christ. Not just our action, even our desires. Uh, You see in Galatians 5, uh, that wonderful passage about the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are all descriptions of our character being transformed, of the fruit of the Spirit in us. And of course, Colossians 3 is a reminder that our actions are changed. Ultimately, even the way in which we conduct ourselves is different by the power of the Spirit. So Colossians 3, let the message of Christ dwell among you uh, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Different ways of seeing that the Spirit's power is at work in us, that Christ is resident in our hearts, uh, though it takes time and we need patience. And actually, I think one of the reasons why what God does for us, he does for all of us, is because sometimes you can't see God's work in your own life, but you need others to point it out. All of us have an Aunt Gertrude. Well, actually, she's probably not called Aunt Gertrude, but she's that aunt who you see once every couple of years. And when you see her, what does she say? She says, oh my, you've grown now, as you get older, that's not always necessarily a compliment. Um, but certainly when you're a child, you think, oh, no, I hadn't really noticed. Sometimes other people need to point it out. Isn't that a kindness of God? That he saves us, not just me, not just you, that as he does his work in us, sometimes others are the ones who notice. And they hold up a mirror to reflect and to encourage us. Isn't that one of the reasons why you're part of this community? That living by faith, which is always hard, is slightly less hard when there are others who stand alongside you. Okay, that's Paul's first prayer. Let me come to his second prayer. Uh, This is verses 17 to 19. Verse 17 through 19. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul's second prayer is that we may have power to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Uh, What Paul is doing here is he's asking the God who has glorious riches to spare to fill us to the measure of of all the fullness of God. And what makes that possible is Christ's work in us, not our work or our service or our efforts for Christ. Paul is saying that what matters ultimately is not our love for Christ, but Christ's extraordinary love for us. It's a love that brings us to that strange oxymoron that Paul uses there. You noticed it, didn't you, in verse 17? Uh, Sorry, verse 18? Verse 19, in fact, a love that surpasses knowledge. A love that surpasses knowledge. That's what Paul prays that we might know better. Know the love that surpasses knowledge. I said it's a strange oxymoron because um, it doesn't, it's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? How can you know that which surpasses knowledge? Uh, it is like when we talk about things 
that don't make sense to us, but they're designed to provoke us. So, for example, oxymorons like, and because there's Colin here, I can't resist this one. The oxymorons like Great Britain. Um, <laughs> you say that. Oh, okay, that's a bit harsh. Um, well, things like dynamic Anglican. You know, things that you, you say them and you think, how could that possibly be? Paul's point is that God's love for us is so big that Christ taking up residence in our hearts the Holy Spirit being at work in our inner being, they are processes that have begun, but they are still incomplete. Which means that for us who are believers, no matter how long you have been one, even if you're rooted and established in God's love, you can still know his love even more. That's a prayer to pray, isn't it? But it takes time. Actually, it takes even more than time. It takes effort. I think. It takes effort to grasp God's love which surpasses knowledge. And I say that because to highlight a really intriguing aspect of Paul's prayer, did you notice what he actually prayed? He prayed not that we might feel the love of Christ, but that we might know the love of Christ. He doesn't pray that we might feel the love of Christ, but that we might know it. Let me say something about this for just a moment. Um, For the record, uh, I'm not trying to be dismissive of feelings. I've heard about them. (laughs) No, that's not true. Uh, (laughs) My wife tells me about them all the time. Uh, No, 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 that's not my point. Um, My point is that our society values feelings above all else. If it feels right, you should do it, provided you don't hurt anyone else. That's the mantra around which our society operates. You tell it, of course, in the ridiculous love songs that are written, which are all about feelings. Can you feel the love tonight? Don't worry, no singing today. Because of that, I always feel somewhat nervous when Christians talk more about feeling God's love than knowing God's love. Because the language that Paul uses here in Ephesians 3 is deliberate. It's meant to remind us, I think, that whereas feelings are instant and easy and variable and circumstantial and passive and reactive, the search for knowledge is intentional and deliberate. And it requires effort and perseverance. So when Paul exhorts us to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge... I think he is saying to be intentional about that and to be deliberate. Which, if you follow that, leads to the obvious practical application. How? How can you come to know this love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge? You notice how Paul describes this love? He says it's wide and long and high and deep. Four dimensions, apparently, which I hadn't known about until now. Which dimension of God's love are you meant to know better, comprehend more? Let me make two suggestions. One is about us, and one is about God. Here's the suggestion about us. The more we grasp our unworthiness, the better we appreciate Christ's love for us. The more we grasp our unworthiness, the better we appreciate Christ's love for us. 
Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 4, which you saw just a couple of weeks ago, printed there on your handout again. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when? When we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. One of the ways in which you better appreciate Christ's love is that you grasp your unworthiness for it. And so I think of one of those songs that we do sing, which interestingly is written in the first person, not plural, but I think expresses this so lovely. It's one that, um, it's from an old hymn, so some of you won't know it, but it goes like this. My song is love unknown. My saviour died for me. Love to the loveless shown that I might lovely be. But who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? Uh, Thomas Cramner, the architect of the English Reformation, uh, he used to say, the cross shows God's love for the unlovable. The cross shows God's love for the unlovable, not for the lovely. And so uh, I mentioned earlier that my wife and I are involved in marriage preparation. Um, one of the things that uh, we point out usually uh, in on a wedding day, in the wedding sermon, is that on the wedding day, a couple generally is so obviously in love with each other that they'll do anything for each other. Which means the true test of love comes the day after the wedding, when they realise that their spouse is actually every bit as sinful as they are. Uh, which, of course, is why Christian wedding vows aren't about how I feel, but they're about an intention, a promise to act. Okay, so that's the first thing. How do you better understand and know this love of God? There's something about us. The more we grasp our unworthiness, the better we appreciate Christ's love. The second there is about God. Uh, the more we grasp the cost of our salvation, the better we appreciate Christ's love. The more we grasp the cost of our salvation, the better we appreciate Christ's love. That is, the more we understand what God did for us, what God gave up for us the more apparent his love for us becomes. And you'll see this in a couple of weeks' time when you get to Ephesians 5. Again, I've printed it there for you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so, here's another song that we sing. In fact, we're going to sing it in just a few moments, entirely appropriately. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast, beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons and daughters to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulder. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out amongst the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know now that it is finished. So I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection. 
Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Uh, Tim Keller, a great American preacher, consistently says, the gospel is that we are more wicked than we ever dare believe and we are more loved than we ever dared hope for. And the evidence of God's love at the cross, which we can know, you can know it even beyond how you feel about it on any given day, that's what gives you confidence that God loves us now and he will always. You know, one of the basic tenets of behavioural psychology is the best indicator of future performance is past behaviour. So if you want to know what God is still to do for us, see what he has already done. He has given us his son. That's the cost of our salvation. So there is nothing that he will withhold for us when we are with him in glory. Now, if you're forgetful, as some of us are, the best way to remember is constant reminder. The best way to remember is constant reminder. And it's for that reason that at the bottom of your handout, there's a little picture there. It hasn't come out so clearly. But um, one day, about a year or so ago, my youngest daughter put this little post-it note on my desk. You can see what it says. Dear Daddy, I love you. I really do love you. Love, Amy. Now, it wasn't a surprise to me that she said that, but it was lovely to be reminded. So perhaps you might consider how in this week ahead you might be reminded of the cost of your salvation that you might once again be reminded of how much God loves us. Uh, Let me finish. Uh, Point four, from prayer requests to praise points. Paul has prayed. This is what he leads us in, this great prayer of these two ideas here. Look at how he finishes in verses 20 and 21. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Uh, There are many good prayer requests to bring to the Father from whom we're all descended. But this week I want to ask you, will you pray, Lord, this week will you help me better know your love for you? This week, Lord, will you help me better know your love for you? Uh, Let me warn you, if you're prepared to pray that prayer, uh, learning is generally hard. Um, Learning is generally hard. It takes time and effort. You have to study. You have to internalize it. Uh, Learning is hard here because if you want to better know God's love for us, that will involve you seeing a little more of the full horror of your sin that you might better grasp his forgiveness. I want to say to you in this week ahead, by all means, pray circumstantial prayers. Pray, Pray the prayers for your particular situation. They are good things to pray. He is our Father in heaven. He longs to hear them all. But will you ask for this? This first and foremost, this above all else, will you be satisfied if he answers this prayer for you in the week ahead and not the others, that you might know his love for you, this love which surpasses knowledge, a little better? That's a big ask, isn't it? 
to be willing to pray that prayer before any other. And I think the only reason why you'd even bother trying is if you were convinced that the Father before whom we kneel will grant this request, that we might know him more. So if you start this week, well, just remember, Paul expects that the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, he expects that he'll do so. And that means, of course, that the right finale for today is not with prayer requests, but with praise points, giving glory to God. Glory throughout all generations forever and ever. Including now, in our generation. We can start now. Start now giving praise to the God who delights to answer this prayer. We can start now, even if the renovation of the heart might take a little bit longer. Let me do so now. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness and mercy. We thank you for all that you've done for us, the gift of life and health and safety, and power to work and leisure to rest, for everything beautiful in your world. But above all, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for his death in our place that our sins might be taken away. And so we pray, take up residence in our hearts, continue to transform us to be more like him, And each day, this week, Lord, may you help us to better know your love for us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.